1 Samuel chapter 16. We know the book of Samuel opens up as the book of Judges closes. Judges tells us what's going on in Israel. In the very last book of the verse uh, of the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, it says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Israel had not had a king. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's what it's like in Israel. The first part of the book of Samuel, remember, is a transition from a theocracy, a, a, a people ruled and governed by God, to a monarchy, a people ruled by an earthly king. In chapter 8, God's people, the Israelites, demand a king, a king of their own choice, a king of their own choosing, a king like all the other nations have who will judge them and fight their battles for them. And God tells them that this desire, uh, and, excuse me, this decision and desire for the king that they wanted was a rejection of her only covenant king, which is God himself. God then tells Samuel, listen, obey the voice Listen to the people, Samuel, and anoint the king. Give them what they want. And his name, as we know, first king of Israel, is Saul. And according to chapter 9, Saul is a stud. (laughs) A tall, dark, and handsome young man. And we said we're in chapter 9 that be careful what you ask for. (laughs) Be careful what you ask for. Because God just may, in his loving discipline, give us what you ask for in order to teach you a valuable lesson. And that's exactly what he did. And although Saul was the one they wanted, ultimately, in the sovereignty of God, God was choosing, God was teaching them their lesson. And over the past few chapters, we've been tracking with this king, King Saul, and his actions and what kings do, they battle. They battle against the Ammonites, uh, Saul does, uh, especially his son Jonathan. Uh, the Philistines, he fought battles against the Philistines. And last week, we saw Saul's battle against the Amalekites. If you remember, a little bit different than the other battles because this was God's direct judgment upon the Amalekites. They were, they were a, a, a terrible people, a, a willful, rebellious people who would sacrifice kids, sacrifice on a daily basis women. Um, and God said, enough is enough. And he sends Saul and his army to do destruction upon and justice upon the Amalekites. But we've been saying that Saul is a man of the flesh. And what we mean by that is Saul is an unregenerate man. He doesn't want what God wants. He doesn't listen to what God says. What he does is he listens and he responds to his corrupt nature and all its weaknesses and depravity. And this morning's text narrative is a transition from man's selection of a king and God's selection of a king. Now remember back in chapter 13, verse 14, When Saul disobeyed Samuel, the prophet of God, where the word of God came from, in chapter 13, verse 14, Samuel said to Saul, your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. You disobeyed. And even last week, uh, as as Samuel is declared to the king, King Saul, that because he did not obey the word of God from the prophet of God to completely annihilate the Amalekites, remember, he spared King Agag and some of the sheep and stuff, and because he didn't obey completely, he says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And now we're waiting on this king. Who's this king after God's own heart? Who's this king who is better than you? 
His name is David. And let me keep this in front of you as we learn about David over the past several months. I want to keep that. In fact, there's an Old Testament scholar by the name of Alec Mortier. He says it perfectly. I'll let him speak about this when we're talking about David. He says this. David is one of the most complex characters in Scripture and the most colorful and lovable and exasperating. Or, yeah, exasperating. He excites, David excites such devotion and just as easily we feel disenchanted. Whatever his quality as a person, as a king, he proved a failure. He failed to govern his kingdom and he was unable to govern his family because he did not govern himself, end quote. David will also sin. David not only will sin, David will in fact sin greatly. David will fall in many ways because we don't look for the hero outside of Jesus Christ. You see, all the kings of Israel, all even all the good kings of Israel, point to the ultimate king, the perfect king, the king of kings. That's why our, our sermon series has been called The King of Kings. He points to Jesus Christ, the king of kings, David's son who will literally be a man after God's own heart, Jesus alone. In fact, the gospel is opened up in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It says that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Romans chapter 1, Paul uh, does this beautiful exposition of the gospel. He opens up in chapter 1 showing that Jesus is the offspring of David. David's a very colorful picture, but he points to the ultimate king of kings, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep that in our mind as we study about this man. Number one, let's look at our outline. The rejection of man. See, man has a different idea about kingship. The selection of God, God will now choose and anoint David. The affliction of Saul, (laughs) Saul's going to have some problems coming to him this chapter. It's interesting, this chapter 16, how it unravels. And then the alleviation of Saul. Saul will need help in dealing with his struggles and his troubles. So for the two of you that take notes, there you go. Number one, the rejection of man. So here we are, chapter 16, verse 1, and here the infallible, authoritative, Inspired word of God. Chapter 1, chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, All right. Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint from me him whom I declare to you. Verse four, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourself. And come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons. And he invited that, that family to the sacrifice. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Chapter 15 closes. The prophet of God and the king of God, Saul, like chapter 13, are going in their separate ways. Only this time it says Samuel did not see Saul again. Until the day of his death. But, look at the end of chapter 15. 
Samuel was grieved over Saul. And now chapter 16 opens up with the Lord saying to this prophet of God, enough. Enough is enough. It's time to stop grieving over the sin and brokenness of Saul, the sin and brokenness of this situation. For I, the Lord, have rejected him as the king. I've rejected him as the king over Israel. And unfortunately, as we've been studying this book together, the word rejection or the idea of rejection is the slogan of Saul's reign. It really is. Saul's kingship had its beginning in rejection because the people rejected the Lord as their king in chapter 8 when they wanted their own king. And Samuel said, you've not, re-. God says to Samuel, listen, they, they've rejected me. You think they rejected you? They did not. He says, they have not rejected you, but they rejected me, God says. The, the, the rejection really ultimately is about me, and they are rejecting me, he says. Then again, Samuel gathers them together, if you remember, in chapter uh, 10 in Mitzvah, to, to actually receive their king, King Saul. And Samuel says to them, today, in this gathering among you, you have rejected your God, who, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said, set a king over us. Chapter 15 gets worse. Remember from last week, Samuel said to Saul, you have rejected the word of the Lord. Prophet speaking to the king, you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Chapter 15, verse 26. And now it's time. Now it's time for Samuel. It's time for Samuel to understand the correctness of God's judgment. It is time for Samuel to turn from his grief to God's future. Turning from grief to God's future. And I really believe that Samuel loved Saul. I really believe that. I think Samuel was following the Lord's will and was trying to teach the king to stop being such a knucklehead and doing what you want, but listen to the word of the Lord. Submit yourself to the word of the Lord through the prophet. And there was a relationship, and that's why it says he was grieved over it. Saul would suffer from his failure, and Samuel would be weeping. And it just reminds me, I think it should remind us all, the one who loves God, who who is filled with the Spirit, who loves his word, will love his people. And will love people in general. Uh, You see them uh, filled with the Spirit and an overflowing of love. And I even think it's fair to say that those who follow and are filled with the Spirit and follow the Lord, they'll be broken about sin. They'll be broken about the sin of others and the destruction of others. They'll be broken about their own sin at times. Jesus Christ himself on his way into Jerusalem, if you remember, the week before his crucifixion, and, and there, he meets a crowd, and the crowd is singing, you know, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And as Jesus approaches the city, and he looks out over the city, knowing, knowing the destruction that is coming upon the city because of the rebellion, weeps. Over the city. Notice God doesn't say to Samuel, why are you weeping? Why are you grieving? Family, sometimes it's not only appropriate to grieve, it's necessary. But sometimes enough is enough. Two extremes, right? Lack of grief. Right? I, I don't want to be involved with anyone. I want to keep my heart cold and separate and not get involved with anyone. And the other extreme has gotten to the place where enough is enough and you keep pushing the envelope and grief turns to what? Self-pity? Bitterness? Resentment? Anger? 
I think Samuel was headed in that direction. That's why God says, stop. Fill your horn with oil. There's work to be done. And sometimes, you know, sometimes the best remedy for self-pity and resentment is serving people, loving people, doing the will of God and caring for people. So God says to Samuel, look, it's time. You're going to anoint the king of my choosing. Now go to Bethlehem. And do so. And Bethlehem's about 10 miles away, maybe 8 to 10 miles away from where he was. And go see a man, Jesse. Look what he said in chapter uh, 16, verse 1 again. For I, Jesse has a bunch of sons, and, 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 and God sends Samuel and he says, For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And I'll show you who will be the next king. The word provided is the word see. I see. Actually, I think, let me see. Uh, it's seven times that Hebrew word is used in the script in this verse. It's translated a little differently, but it's the same Hebrew word to see, to see, to see. Because the narrator wants us to see clearly that God sees man differently than man sees man. Right? So God sees man differently than man sees man. But <laughs> poor Samuel's like, I'll go, but there's a problem. If the, if the king finds out that I'm going, and he finds out I'm anointing a new king, it's not going to go well. He's going to kill me. See, he's in Ramah. He's got to go to Bethlehem, and he's got to go right through Gibeah, right where Saul is. And if he gets wind of it, he thinks, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. So God says, okay, I'll tell you what you do. I got you an alibi. I'll give you an alibi. Get a heifer. You're a priest. You're a prophet. Get a heifer. Go and sacrifice in Bethlehem. Invite Jesse and his sons. And then when you invite them, I'll show you who the next king is. And you can anoint him there. Right? right? He said, not, he said telling Samuel, listen, I'm not asking you to lie. I, I'm, just not, I'm just saying don't tell him the whole truth. And God can do that. Teenagers can't, just so you know. <laughs> so go. And Samuel goes. But when he gets there, the elders of the city are like, oh, here comes Samuel. And they're afraid. Look, are you, have you come peacefully? They're like, why is this famous prophet who goes circuit? We saw this earlier. sees a circuit prophet. And many times he's coming to what? Pronounce judgment. They're like, uh-oh, what do we do? You know, who, 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 here, here comes the prophet. And, and he's got a, 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 a sacrifice with him. We did something wrong. Something's not right. That could be the reason. Some commentators, most say that, but not all of them. I think it's because they said, here comes Samuel. Did you hear what he just did last week? He chopped up that king in little pieces. He's got his sword with him. I'm not staying around. That's what I think. He got a piece of Agog, you know, thumb sticking out of his beard or something. Who knows? I don't know. Anyway, you know, he comes into the city. He's a Levitical prophet. He says to them, listen, consecrate yourself. I come peaceably. Consecrate yourself. Probably has to do with bathing, maybe changing your clothes, Jewish law. And come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Notice the special invitation, as God commanded, to Samuel to invite Jesse's family. Look, verse 6. When they came, he looked, up, he looked at Eliab and he thought, ah, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Right? Surely this is the guy. But the Lord said to Samuel, uh-uh. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have, here we go again, rejected him 
For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord does not look as things like man looks, literally the eyes of outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. The Lord alone, listen, the Lord alone has the capacity to read motives and intentions of one's heart. When the, when the Hebrew scriptures talk about, the Old Testament talks about the heart, it, it talks about the emotion, it talks about the thoughts, it talks about the affections, it talks about the, in, the, the intent, the will, it's the totality of man. And on God's scale, these matters outweigh, the heart outweighs all other aspects of human life from outward appearances. God is not limited, listen family, God is not limited by our point of view, right? So God's not deceived by outward appearances. He sees the heart. God is not deceived by outward actions and appearances. God looks at the heart. Now before we get into what that actually means, let's point out something else I want to look at. Here is Samuel gathering Jesse, his seven sons. They're sacrificing, they're preparing the meal, and they're eating, they're going to be, you know, fellowshipping together. And Samuel goes there and he sees Eliab, six foot three, right? 260, raw muscle. And he says, that's the guy. Haven't we seen that already? Does that sound familiar? Right? Was there anybody else that was choosing from external looks? I mean, Saul, King Saul, Mr. Israel, right? Won the contest year after year. It's interesting that with all the wisdom that Samuel possesses, Samuel still says Saul's, uh, uh, the king is going to take over Saul is, is that guy. Samuel is going about it as it was done in the past. And what strikes me is, here's a man of God, a prophet of God, a you know, let's say a mature, he's been walking with the Lord a long time. And it just reminded me, it should remind you that we have to be very careful in judging external uh, experience, appearances and be careful to judge, uh, be careful when we judge internal motives. We think we know. Samuel thinks he knows, but he doesn't know. And if Samuel is caught that way, I'm, how much more can we? We have to be careful. Samuel judges Jesse's sons by the external qualities, just as the Israelites judged Saul. Acceptability, didn't he? So verse 8, Jesse called Abinadab, passed before Samuel. And he said, nah, neither, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Eliab's appearance, his height, his physique, as the rest of them, was not registering important qualities that God was looking for. God does not look down from heaven and say, man, you have a great haircut. Whew, I could use you. Are you tan so well? You benched really well? Wow. There's something about those strong muscles and that sweet haircuts. You know, he doesn't say that. His standards are different. His standards are different. For what most of us value, most of us, let's be honest, it's external. God looks at the heart. In one real sense, you know, it's great news. Because if God was only looking at external appearances in order to qualify someone to do the work that God has prepared for him, we're all in trouble. I'm sorry. 
right? Particularly me. I'm not signing up for any Mr. American contest lately, you know? And it's not like God looks down and says, you know what? You got a really cute smile. I can't use you. You're too cute. You know what I mean? You know what? Look at that. Look at that, you know, lovely physique. You're way too handsome. You're way too pretty. It's not that. What the point is, the point is, God looks at the heart. Even David himself is said to be ruddy with beautiful eyes and handsome. Ruddy means either he had a red complex or red hair. He had beautiful eyes and overlook. Listen, good looks doesn't make you or break you. That's the point. Because even David is not, we're not told that he has this great stature. He's just saying he's a, he's a young man who is handsome. The point is God is not interested primarily about what you look like. God is interested in the heart, right? I mean, David, he's out in the field. Uh, you know, he, he really, king, potential king, the point is man's evaluation is primarily outwardly because quite frankly, that's all we see. We don't know the heart. Our judgments are, are at best flawed, yet God looks past that and sees the heart. And that should, again, cause great, great, great concern when we're quick to judge other people. Let me also say this. For those of you who are not married or you young folks here, listen. It's not what's most important. It's not what's most important. The outward appearance is not most important. Again, not that it doesn't matter at all. I said this in the first service. I'm going to embarrass my wife, and that's okay. I think my wife is absolutely beautiful. But more importantly, God's grace has made her inwardly beautiful. And that should be an encouragement to all of us, especially to those who are getting older and rounder. Because many of us, what we do is we try to measure up. We try to get value. We try to get the pat on the back. We try to get all these things and measure up to the standards of this world and to seek that ultimate approval, to seek the acceptance through external means. Very few people reach it. And if you do, and if you make it that day, you're going to get old someday too. And you may not have the portfolio when, when the stock market is or something happens to your, to your success, your perfect body, your, your conflict-free family eludes you. God looks at the heart. That's the point. The rejection of man. And now look at the selection of God. Verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are these, are these all your kids? Are they all your sons? And he said, there yet remains the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, okay, send and get him. We're not going to sit down until he comes here. We're not going to start this meal until he gets here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. And the Lord said, arise to Samuel, arise, anoint him, for this is he. The fact, think this, think through this through for a moment. The fact that Jesse did not even have David present for Samuel's visits a visit, as with the other sons, I think is clearly suggesting to us that something's not right. He, he looked at that one son more as a hired hand. I mean, famous prophet's in town. A famous prophet's inviting us. A famous prophet is going to sacrifice, and he's going to uh, invite us to consecrate ourselves, invite us to this, to this festival. Everyone's getting ready. Everyone's consecrating themselves. No, David, you, you, you go outside, you get the sheep. We got this. Minimally, right? Uh, maybe a neglected child, maybe an unequal appreciation among the other siblings. Minimally. 
Old Testament scholar Robert Alter says this. David is a kind of male Cinderella. He's left to the domestic chores instead of being invited to the party. Pretending of his flock to which he has been banished will give him exactly what he needs, both in the Goliath battle and later to lead his people. The David story, he says, plays out of the theme of the reversal of the primogeniture that dominates Genesis. Primogeniture is when the oldest son gets everything, the firstborn. David is not only not the oldest, he's not even one of the seven sons, the Hebrew number for completion. David is the eighth child and therefore not even there at all, end of quote. But that's not how God sees him. He tells Samuel, look, take this ruddy young lad. Some people think he's 15, 18. I've read different commentaries, 22, but he's a younger lad. And then we said, verse 13, and Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the midst of his brother. And this whole narrative, this, this whole outworking in this narrative is, is, is clear, is clear and, and, and really an example as we see this narrative unfolding of the astonishing providence of God, right? Someone once wrote, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform, plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. And what we see in this chapter are several demonstrations of the sovereignty of God in choosing David. Even, we'll see in a moment, the sending of an evil spirit upon Saul. These are God's acts. These are acts of his sovereignty. And God is setting the stage. God is doing this. And the the fundamental statements that you find in chapter 16, like verse 1, it says, I, the Lord speaking, have provided for myself a king among his people. Verse 19, the Lord has not chosen these, meaning the other boys. Verse 12, and the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he, the one I've chosen. This is all about the gracious, kind, sovereign purposes rather than, now listen, the quality in a man. Yes, the new king would be what the scripture says according to God's own heart, but it's God's choice. Chuck Swindoll writes this about what it means to be according to God's heart. He says, what does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? He says, seems to me, it means that you are a person whose life is in harmony with the Lord. What is important to him is important to you. What burdened him burdens you. When he says go to the right, you go to the right. When he says stop that in your life, you stop it. When he says... This is wrong. I want you to change. You come to terms with it because you have the heart of God, the heart for God, end quote. The Lord told Samuel, listen, the Lord told Samuel that the Lord sees with his eyes, not not the external, not the impressions of, of a person, but with his own heart, his own personal intention and purposes. And therefore, now listen, family, David had a particular place in God's heart and God's purposes, and that was made the difference. I mean, think about it. As I'm studying this passage this week, two verses came to mind regularly as we're talking about the heart, right? I couldn't get them out of my mind. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in all the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Roman tells us that there is no one righteous, no one seeks after God. Ephesians 2 tells us we're dead in our sins, we're by nature children of wrath. In fact, Jesus himself taught us 
That is where the heart, the seat of man, is where sin flows from. Man's inward life. P. Kyle McCarty's commentary writes this. It could be the anointing of David, the choosing of David. This has nothing to do with any great fondness of Yahweh for David or any special quality of David. Rather, it emphasizes the free divine selection of the heir of his throne. Woodhouse writes this, a great, a great quote. A man after God's own heart does not mean man with a heart like God. It means a man of God's own choosing, a man God has set his heart on. To be more technical, he says, I'm saying in 1 Samuel 13, when it says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, he says the word after, according to his own heart, qualifies the verb sought out. Okay, got that? It, it, of his own heart, sought out. It sought a man of his own heart, not the noun, which was the man. It's not pointing to the man, it's pointing to God. Then he writes this. This could be represented more clearly in this English translation from the Hebrew. According to his own heart, the Lord has sought out a man. That's a better translation. He says, this is talking about the place, listen, this is talking about the place the man has in God's heart rather than the place God has in the man's heart. End quote. One is God-centered, one is man-centered. See the difference? And you say, well, are you sure? Uh, are you sure this is about God's gracious and sovereign choices? If you're not sure, King David is. He said and prayed, King David prayed in 2 Samuel 7, because of your promise, O Lord, and according to your own heart, O Lord, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. End quote of, of 2 Samuel. The verses affirm that the new king would be one whom God has sought out according to his own heart. And, 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 and yes, if you're thinking, oh, well, okay, this is the work of God, yes. And, and, and ladies and gentlemen, friends and family, men and women have real, willing, responsible choices to make. You, you are called to, to, to respond to the grace of God. And you have real and eternal consequences, one that you will be, I will be held accountable for. But in the words of Wayne Grudem, who said it perfectly, exactly how God combines his providential control, his sovereignty, with our willing and significant choices, scriptures does not explain to us. There's a mystery. But rather than deny one aspect or the other, we should accept both and attempt to be faithful to the teaching of all of scripture, end quote. The sovereign Lord has chosen a king among the sons of Jesse. God has provided David. David was God's own provision by grace. David did not come, listen, as a result of spiritual solicitation. David did not come as a result of Samuel's prayer. David's story began in the eternal heart, longing, deep heart of God himself. David's story began the same way your story begins. Deep longing in the eternal heart of God. The story of God's search for a chosen one. The Lord chose you just like he chose David. The will of God was the cause. The will of God was the cause of David's promotion. And the will of God is the cause of your salvation. It is the work of God's grace alone. I will provide myself with the king. David, I'll sum it up this way. David was in the heart of God long before he was in the hearts of the people of Israel. 
And this doctrine of choosing, and biblically speaking of election, has deep roots in the Old Testament. God makes it clear. He didn't choose Israel because they were all cool that, and, and loving and sweet, and they just loved the Lord, and they were following after him. That's not what he said. And he didn't choose a king because of his own personal qualities and righteousness. On the contrary, whatever outstanding qualities we might see in this new king of David, are the consequences of, not the reason for, God's choice of him. In fact, the security of the throne of David, the eternal throne of David, where God will reign and rule, where the Lord Jesus Christ will sit on, will rest on the solid foundation of the promises of God. Listen, not David's performance. Amen. It's on what God has declared. That is what makes his reign so different. And, and you know what? The choice of David is not like man's choices. The word the youngest or the tiniest or the smallest shows us that. Essentially, David, essentially David is, is the littlest. His, his father didn't even invite him to the event, but God had something for him. The youngest son is obscure. And we don't even hear his name until we get to chapter uh, 16, verse 13, I mean, with 12 verses, we don't even know his name. Samuel takes the oil and anoints him in the midst of his brother, and the Spirit of God rushed upon David. You see that? Now, remember what we said back in chapter 10. When the Spirit of God rushed on Saul, it had to do with, uh, with, with the empowering to do the work that God called him to do. Remember we said what the word anointing is, the Hebrew word Messiah. It's the Greek word Christos, or Christ. So Samuel anointed him. Samuel messiahed him. And what we said was, it is a symbol of a consecration. It was a symbol uh, uh, of setting apart someone for the work and the purposes of God. And then we see the anointing of the Spirit come rush upon David to fulfill the role, to do what he needs to do, what God has called him to do. Again, don't read into this a New Testament union with God, born again, we see in John 3. God has many times in the Old Testament uh, uh, rushed upon people like Balaam. He's a Balaam, he's a, a non-believer. But God's spirit comes suddenly on David because he's equipping David. He's empowering David to serve the interest of God. I believe David's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't get me wrong, and I believe Saul was not ever converted, but the Spirit of God rushed upon them so they can do and be equipped for what God wants them to do. But notice the difference in the language. I gotta just point this out to you. Look what it says. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Doesn't say that about Saul. Says that about David. Interesting. The affliction. And the next two will go through quicker. Verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented it. And Saul's servant said, Behold, behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let your Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. Now, your translation may be evil spirit, harmful spirit, distressing spirit. But the problem, or you may be struggling with, is it comes from where? From the Lord. He says it twice. Right? So you've got to be saying, well, wait a second, wait a second. Uh, is that right? Like, the Lord sends this tormenting spirit? That, that doesn't really sit in my theology. He sends this spirit upon Saul, messing with his psyche, and it's coming from God. And Saul will exhibit all kinds of personality disorders soon enough. He's done some already, paranoia, mistrust, anxiety. I mean, Samuel's afraid of the guy. He's going to kill me if I go through the land. 
Read the book of Job. (laughs) The book of Job opens up with (laughs) Satan presents himself in the presence of God and God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now that may seem like, wow, that's, that's hard. That don't really sound good. Imagine if you're Job. Like, really, Lord? 80 million people on the earth? I got, I like, can you find somebody else, maybe? See, I thought God is good. Yes, God is good. God is always good. But God is also just. God is also just. He hands Saul over to evil. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans 1? How he turns men and women over to the reprobate mind? That's what he says. I think when we read Psalm 51 and we hear the, the David's plea, take not thy spirit from me. I used to think, well, it had to do with, you know, something maybe we can't really relate to. But now I'm thinking, maybe he means I know what your spirit will and will not do. I've seen this in, in, when, I'm, when I'm with your, 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 your king, Saul. Don't take thy spirit from me. Even the apostle Paul, when he experiences thorn in the flesh, to keep him humble, to keep him from being conceited, was a messenger of Satan to harass him. Three times, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, three times I plead with you, Lord, about this, that it should leave me. But God said to him, no, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, the idea that God uses evil spirits without being evil himself was known in the Old Testament. Again, the writer of Job, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Notice that the narrator doesn't say, or or what he does say is that the spirit was from God. There's the spirit of God, and then there's the spirit from God. See, the spirit of God grants strength and power for service, while the evil spirit from God torments. You see, everything is under the providential care of God. And, and, and we must acknowledge that in the final analysis, all penal subs, uh, consequences come from God. He's the author of the moral law. Even the invasion of the armies, we will see that as we move forward. Even the invasion of these armies, God raises up. God is providentially using that evil to discipline and chastise his people. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all things, Isaiah 45. Now, there's some mystery, right? The origins of suffering continues to be somewhat mysterious, but God's people, listen, God's people in all of Scripture are encouraged, listen, all are encouraged to know that all adversity and struggle come at least through the providential hand of God for him to get glory in it. And here's what we need to see, and we'll move on to the next point. Here's what we need to see. Defiant disobedience has dreadful consequences. Defiant disobedience has dreadful consequences. God handed him over. It wasn't an act of nature. It wasn't a medical or psychological condition. It was a supernatural work. Brought about to Saul because of his disobedience. Again, I don't think he was converted. I, I don't think he had an eternal union, communion with God. And one of the reasons why I believe that, and not only the text, you have the spirit of evil come upon Saul, and we see torment and Saul spiraling. You have this evil work in Paul's life, and it's bringing humility, confidence, and grace. You see? The believer is being sanctified. 
because the providential hand of God. Yet the unbeliever is being tormented and tortured. And, and, and you see that clearly in this text. The rejection, the selection, the affliction, and finally, look. Whoop. The alleviation of Saul. Chapter 16, verse 17. So Saul said to the servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skilled in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and most importantly, the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and skin of wine young goat, and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. It's close. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whatever, whenever the harmful spirit, verse 23, whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed, and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Saul's service like, listen, you need soothing music. And he recommends, there's a guy I know who has a son, a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy who has a son, he can play music, and it will calm your spirit. I say, praise God, because that's exactly what happens to me, right? You get anxious, you get nervous, you get, and you just play some worship, some songs you sing, and, and, and God uses music. He does in my life. I hope he does in your life as well. And he, he's being oppressed by the Spirit. And, and someone in Bethlehem and, and, and Jesse's, a guy named David, a young boy named David, he's gifted. Look what it says. Valiant warrior, right? Probably because he battles lions, we'll see. He looks good. He's got wisdom, I mean. He's, he, he, he is, he's, uh, the presence of God is with him, and he can play an instrument. Extraordinary in the providence of God. That this David, who was anointed king, will play a lyre, a small harp, in, in the king's presence, the future king, calming the now king. Amazing. He doesn't even know it. So whenever Saul is oppressed, the evil spirit, David plays his harp. The soon anointed king plays his harp, and the trouble Dissipates. So how does Saul spell relief? D-A-V-I-D. Now, there have been sermons, I'm almost done, there have been sermons where you say, all right, David, man, he is, he is dynamite. I mean, he's got all kinds of great qualities. Look at David. Be like David. We're going to look at that next week too. He's the runt of the litter. You know what? And, and he's king now. Don't, don't judge a book. Sometimes even the smallest things and the smallest people and the littlest gifts can become great big packages. Go get them, everyone. Be like David. These stories, the scriptures themselves, are not primarily about you. I'm sorry to tell you. We may see some of ourselves in David, but the story is meant to resonate not to resonate with our lives, but to remind us of someone else. David's points to a greater king. Jesus Christ, who would be the truly ordinary, extraordinary king. When Jesus comes on the scene, he too is anointed, and the Holy Spirit rushes upon him. And the Spirit comes to David, and trouble begins. 
We'll see soon. So it was for David's son, David's Lord, Jesus himself. And rather than being anointed by the Spirit and march unto Jerusalem, he spends 40 days under attack in the wilderness, under temptation. The Spirit drives him out. The wilderness, the temptation, the enemies. Jesus' time on earth will be largely spent in obscurity, and those moments that were not obscure were filled with suffering. But the Father would use the life, Jesus' life of suffering to save sinners. David's anointing is not, is not a narrative telling us, hang on until God puts you on your throne of victory. You're a victor. Jesus is already there. The gospel reminds us that he has won the victory. And if we want to, if we want to, we want victory, it only comes by sharing in his already victory, not anticipating your own. Do you see? David is pointing to another person, another child of Bethlehem. He's pointing us to another person who, when he was anointed with the Spirit, was, was haunted not by Saul but by Satan. He's pointing us to the one who, went on the, when he went to the cross, was not just forgotten by the Father, was not just ignored by the Father. He was abandoned and forsaken. My God, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Here is... The true beauty. And the only kind of true beauty that changes us. On the cross, the most beautiful person, the most glorious person, equal with the Father, came from heaven, emptied himself, left his glory, his beauty, Philippians 2, became a servant. Isaiah 53, that there was no beauty in him that we should desire because his face, particularly, His body was broken, he was beaten, his beard was ripped, he was punched, he was scourged, and then nailed to a cross. You couldn't even look at his bloody mess. Here's one who was beautiful, beyond comprehension, who lost all of his beauty to bear our sins. And if you trust him, if you believe on him, if you yield at him, listen, God looks at us. God looks at us and sees us in that, in Jesus alone. The one who lost all beauty, the one that left heaven so that you and I can have the beauty that really matters, the acceptance that really matters, the love that really matters, the the, the delight in the eyes of God that really matters is because of Jesus who died on the cross, took the Father's just wrath for your sin, my sin, died in our place. That's true beauty. That's true kingliness. And that is how God gives us his heart when we come to that place. When we really see with our spiritual eyes all that Jesus is doing, all that Jesus has done for you. And now you know in the gospel that you are accepted, that you are loved, that you are forgiven, that you are his beauty. And that he in the gospel delights in you. Jesus Christ, the true and better David. God knows your heart. I don't. God knows your heart. And if we would put everything in your heart this week up on that screen, do you think you'd need a Savior? I would. I know I would. It wouldn't be beautiful. But 1 John 3 says this, For whenever our hearts condemn us, 
God is greater than our hearts. You see, the beauty and the delight of God is not resting upon you. It's resting on the beauty and delight that God has in his son. And when his son took our place, died in our place, when he lived that perfect light that's imputed and counted to us, and now we are justified in him, God sees us through the gospel as his delight and his beauty. There's nothing in this world that can match that. Do you know that? I hope you do, and let's respond in prayer. Father, thank you for your rescue. Father, thank you for sending your son. Lord Jesus, thank you for taking what we deserve upon yourself, willingly, in obedience to your father, going to the cross on our behalf. Thank you for all that you have gone through in order to adopt us into the family of God, spirit of God. Thank you for opening our hearts and minds and not leaving us as orphans, but showing us the condemnation we deserve for our hearts, but then showing us also the beauty and the glory that you, O Lord, are greater than our hearts. And that because of the sacrifice of Christ, we can have forgiveness And, Lord, we can be treasured as your children. Help us, Lord, to remember that as we leave. Help us to be filled with your spirit. Help us to be filled with love for others. Help us, Lord, to know the truth of the gospel, that we we are so desperately sinful and wicked that you had to die, but we are loved, treasured, and valued that you were glad to. Help us to respond now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.